Time to get It's a Monday, August 22nd, 11.02 a.m. in L.A. We are live. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Looking forward to a great week. Got a great show today. Chris Ryan on the line. Abby in the studio. Hi, Abby. Hey, Mike. We sure do have a great show today. Human nature. We live in a system that likes to dictate what that is. Competition, conflict, violence, war, self-interest, sexism, hierarchy, inequality. The so-called proof that these things are hardwired into human beings are based on the past 10,000 years or so. The beginning of the Anthropocene, where human activity came to dominate the planet, and the agricultural revolution changed how we eat, live, and organize society. But 10,000 years is a blip on the long story of man. Our human ancestors, who also had things like language, culture, social groups, have been here for millions of years. Our species, Homo sapiens, for around 300 thousand years modern humans with a great leap of behavioral and cognitive traits as far back as 160,000 years so starting human history just 10,000 years ago which brings the emergence of permanent human settlement is missing about 95% of our story and more than that our origins what actually makes us human what it means to be human not simply what we've become as the material world changed around us. Our guest today has done an invaluable job parsing through that story. His debut book, Sex at Dawn, drew a startling comparison between relationships and sex today to the majority of our existence on this planet. Challenging these core norms made it an instant New York Times bestseller and a source of liberation for thousands of people. His latest book, Civilized to Death, dives even deeper into all the ways human behavior has been warped and even crippled over the past 10,000 years and more 
with the rise of technology. Chris Ryan is a friend of mine for many years who also hosts the excellent podcast, Tangentially Speaking. He's here now to break down how human nature isn't what you've been told at all. Welcome to Dosed, Chris. Thank you. Happy to be dosed. Let's get overdosed here. There's a lot of dosed <laughs> moments from this book, Chris. I mean, the reason that I love this book so much, and it's been so entertaining and wonderful to dive in, is because for the past 20 years or so, I've been so obsessed with the nuances of recent human history, namely U.S. history in the context of imperialism over only the last century or so. So it's been really refreshing to take a massively zoomed out view and a really fresh perspective of the entirety of human history. Um, I guess let's start with the NPP. I mean, a lot of your book centers around deconstructing the narrative of perpetual progress. I guess let's start by defining what would you say that is and, and what you think the biggest flaws with that line of thinking are in terms of quantifying or measuring progress and in turn happiness? Well, I think that we suffer from a very understandable bias in our thinking that favors the present over the past. Um, just as most countries, most cultures think that they are the epitome of humanity, that they eat the best food and they have the coolest language and the best music. And, you know, if you ask a Frenchman, what's the best country in the world? Nine times out of 10, they're going to say France. In the U.S., it's the U.S. In Canada, it's Canada. So we all know that. So nationalism is sort of built in. There's a, you know, a sort of instinctive allegiance with what we are familiar with. And that's, as I say, totally understandable. The problem is that that infects what people call science and it distorts science because science is not supposed to be affected by the biases of the observer, right, of the scientist. That's the whole point of science. And so when you're looking at anthropology and, and um, you know, analyses of human progress over the millennia, I think it's very difficult to step away from those inherent biases and really look at it clearly without saying, without starting from the perspective of this is the best it's ever been. Now let's look back at, you know, the, the times that w didn't measure up to now. Um, so the narrative of perpetual progress uh, is probably as old as humanity. Um, but certainly in terms of the book, I sort of traced it back to Hobbes and his very famous declaration that, before the advent of the state, human life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. I mean, this is one of the most famous sentences in the English language, despite the fact that Hobbes had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> he had, you know, no data. It was all just him, you know, pulling these ideas out of the air. Um, and Hobbes himself lived a life that was extremely nasty and brutish and solitary and poor. Um, and so he looked around at his own life and he said, well, what I know is that human life in the past was worse than this. So he just sort of looked at what he was familiar with and primitiv primitivized it a bit and said, that's what life must have been like 
you know, 20,000 years ago, or, uh, actually at that point, the timeline was all wrong because people still thought the earth was six or 7,000 years old. So he wasn't even aware of evolution and, you know, primatology and all the things we've learned in the century since. But anyway, that, that statement from Hobbes, um, continues to infect thinking on human development and, and social development. So you have people like Steven Pinker writing best-selling books talking about how, you know, this is the best it's ever been. And anyone who thinks otherwise is ridiculous. Um, it's a very, it's very easy to dismiss somebody who says, uh, you know, who tries to argue that, well, maybe civilization hasn't actually been this in mid- unmitigated success that that we keep being told it is and for me that the motivation of writing the book wasn't you know haha i'm right and everyone's wrong it, it that wasn't the reason i wrote it the reason i wrote it similar to sex at dawn the the first book that casilda and i wrote together is that i'm motivated by by unnecessary suffering i'm if i do anything in this life that i could feel proud of. I hope that it's bringing some relief to people who are suffering unnecessarily. And I'm not a doctor. And uh, so the only way I can do that is to try to explain why your suffering is not your fault. And the problem with the narrative of perpetual progress is that people are unhappy, and they don't know why. And if they look at their unhappiness against the context of just things are getting better and better and better, then the feeling is there must be something wrong with me. How could I possibly be unhappy? The world is better than it's ever been. Everything's fantastic. We've got the internet. We've got food delivered overnight. We've got this and we've got that. So how can, why do I feel so empty and miserable? Why are suicide rates higher than they've ever been? Why is depression a global epidemic that's growing uh, exponentially? Why are so many people unhappy if the world is just getting better and better? Um, and so I think people turn that anxiety and dissatisfaction inward against themselves. They blame themselves or they blame each other. And my message is forgive yourself. It's not your fault. You actually live in a society that is sick and it's been getting sicker. And that's why you're unhappy. So you're a fish in a poisoned river. It's not your fault that you're not feeling good. And all of these things are internalized, of course, as you say. Um, and these declarations that I have heard over and over again, we live in the most equitable time, we live in the most peaceful time, which is fascinating, just patently untrue statements from people who should know better. I mean, these are some scientists, evolutionary biologists who have said such things. I I love that you refer, I mean, all of these figures who you reference in the book, kind of the post-Hobbesian figures who are perpetuating and reinforcing the theory of status quoism and the myth of perpetual progress. And it's like, I, it, it does seem like there is an argument to be made that even capitalism, which is supposed to predicate another system that is advancing, that's better out of capitalism, things are actually morphing into a worse stage of capitalism, almost like a neo-feudal state that we're entering into. I want to compare... Hobbes's famous declaration of the horrific nature of civilization before the ad, or I guess of pre-civilization before the advent of the state, as to what it was actually like, because it, it really 
is amazing when you look at 95% of all of human existence was before this time, Chris. I mean, I mean, the positive traits that I think most human beings have and cherish today, which is really difficult to harness under the system that we live in, it, it, generosity, honesty, mutual respect, empathy, all of these things are difficult in practice under this cutthroat selfish system that runs on greed and individual individualism. But in fact, these characteristics are what defined foraging communities, which flourished because of these characteristics. There were concrete survival reasons for hunter-gatherer ancestors to honor them. Can you go into that? Yeah, I I mean, you're right. And that's that's sort of the crux of the issue, right? That our nature is in opposition to our culture. And that creates not only unhappiness, depression, anxiety, suicide, and so on, uh, and unhealthy relationships. Um, it also manifests in, in physiological issues, you know, digestive issues, chronic fatigue, uh, chronic pain, back pain. I mean, all these, um, virtually every disease known to humanity is either caused or exacerbated by stress. So if you're living in a, a situation where you're in opposition to your culture, your nature is in opposition to your culture, you're going to have problems. Um, And again, as I said, it's not your fault. That's just what's going to happen. There's no way around that. So um, that's the challenge. As far as how people lived before the advent of the state. So listeners are going to be saying, well, how do you know? Right. How on earth? You you don't have a time machine. You can't go back in time and know. So um, there are different things that we can look at to to get a sense of that. The first is anthropological research on hunter gatherers who are alive today. Um, and, you know, to be clear, we're not saying that these people live in the stone age there. We're not, this isn't, they're less developed than us kind of thing. They're just as evolved as we are. They've been around just as long. Their, you know, evolutionary path is, is the same as ours. The only difference is that for the last couple thousand years, they've continued to live the way humans always did. And we veered off in this other direction, um, so by looking at contemporary hunter-gatherers that have been studied in the last 100 or 200 years, uh, we get a lot of insights. And uh, the other sort of typical um, caveat is that they're not all the same. Not all hunter-gatherers are exactly the same, but there are universalities among them. So if you study hunter-gatherers in the Arctic Circle and hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari Desert in in Africa and hunter-gatherers in the Amazon and in Papua New Guinea, and they all have certain things in common, then you can safely conclude that these things are common to hunter-gatherers in the past as well, especially if they're um, structurally important. Their, Their importance, their structural importance is obvious. For example, sharing that you mentioned. Sharing is ubiquitous in hunter-gatherer societies. In fact, anthropologists refer to them as fiercely egalitarian. So it's not just that you share, it's you're expected to share. And if you don't share, there's something seriously wrong with you. Uh, you risk being kicked out of the group, which is 
a death sentence in hunter-gatherers. Um, so there's a sense of egalitarianism that's very important that extends to women and children as well as men. Um, decisions are made through consensus because nobody has coercive power in a hunter-gatherer group simply because no one can block anyone else's access to the essentials of life. So in a capitalist society, if you get canceled, you lose your job, you can't get another job, you can't get food, you can't get an apartment. If your credit score is, you know, destroyed by something, you can't, you can't function. So people can block you, institutions can block you from getting what you need. But a hunter-gatherer society, everybody knows how to hunt, everybody knows how to forage, everybody knows how which plants are, are medicinal and which can be used for first aid and various, you know, typical uh, medical conditions. Uh, everyone knows how to build a shelter. So you can't block people from the things they need, um, which makes coercive power very difficult to accumulate. Also, nobody is accumulating resources. That's, that's sort of fundamental to immediate return hunter gatherers. Um, so you don't get hierarchies. You don't get slavery. Now, primates, all primates are hierarchical in a social sense. Um, but I'm talking about kingdoms and uh, hoarding of resources and food and slavery and things like that. And class. They simply don't exist. The yeah, division class. of the social classes and wealth right. disparity. And everything. Right. So you consequently, you look at hunter-gatherers and you see they're fiercely egalitarian. They're respectful of women and children. Um, the adults all participate in the education and raising of children. So if a baby's crying, the nearest adult will pick up the baby. They don't look around for the mother. It doesn't matter who the mother is. Any adult can pick up the baby. Similarly, if a kid's getting into trouble, any adult can say, Hey, get away from that. You know, be careful. You know, there's not this like, that's my kid kind of thing. <laughs> Um, and in Sex at Dawn, we argued that that extended to sexual relationships as well. There's no reason to think that, you know, that's my wife. Oh, that's my husband. Keep your hands off him. Um, if you're sharing everything else and nobody really cares who the father of the children, who the fathers are, um, because many hunter-gatherer societies don't even know that sex results in babies or pregnancy. They, they haven't made the connection. Um, because everyone's having sex and people get pregnant. So why would you think that sex causes pregnancy, you know? Um, but anyway, you, you look at hunter gatherer societies and you see egalitarianism, you see, uh, uh, respect for women and children. You see a lot of, uh, cooperation and, and sharing, as we said. Um, and you see happy people. Um, and so, when I wrote this book, I thought, well, okay, we have to look at, you know, anyone can cherry pick and, and make an argument. So what are the qualities of life that are sort of universally important to human beings? And I came up with things like, is my life meaningful? Um, am I forced to do a lot of things I don't want to do? Uh, do I have friends? Is my social life rich and satisfying? Um, is my food healthy, nutritious? Is my body in good shape? Um, 
you know, you look at these things and or, or uh, longevity of active, healthy lifespan. You look at these things and hunter-gatherers come out on top everywhere. Now, someone like, um, what's his name, uh, Matt Ridley wrote a book called The Rational Optimist, which I had some fun taking apart in Civilized to Death. And he says things like, I mean, one of the first pages of the book, he says, Things are better than they've ever been. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But he says, uh, you know, we have more uh, nanoseconds than ever before. We have more. <laughs> Wasn't this guy like a, a lord himself? <laughs> he was. He is a house, He is a lord. His father was in the House of Lords. He was raised in a freaking castle. And he was the head of the biggest bank to ever fail in England uh, at the time. Bad lordship. So, yeah, and I think his like his grandfather like invented the golden retriever, you know. Like, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> he's the father of, of inbreeding. <laughs> exactly. So so he's like, you know, things are better than they've ever been. We've got more mango slicers and tennis rackets, and you know, and literally these are the examples he's giving. I'm like, dude, mango slicers? Like that's how you we don't need that success? shit, man. That is like a Shark Tank throwaway. I mean, well, like to your point, I mean, the meaning, it's like when you say, does my life have meaning? And it's like, what, what is that that gives us meaning? And a lot of that has to do with the reciprocal nature, you know, when you, when you give and take and, and receive after giving something to someone. I mean, that, that's something that you explain in your book, like activates some of the same brain chemistry as like orgasms or eating a really amazing meal. It's like the generosity and the, just the giving nature that like people just don't do it's like because selfishness is so encouraged and it's so counterintuitive to this yeah i mean in our society everything that can possibly be commodified is right and so i mean i don't know if you guys are old enough to remember when there was no bottled water you just <laughs> drank water from the tap right and then somebody came up with the idea of like wait a minute they'll buy sparkling water from france and so we had perrier and then perrier spread into you know all this other stuff and now people are afraid to drink from the tap so i think that kind of process happens everywhere you know like a good neighbor state farm is there well what happened to the good neighbor now now we're afraid to talk to our neighbors Oh man, Chris, I, that reminds me that, um, you know, I think it's a common experience for people to live in like an apartment building for years and like never actually talk to or even know the name of the people that like live next door to them on their floor, all stuff like that. And I think like kind of a weird example of this is I lived in this building in downtown LA for like five years and I had this dog named Mulder and Everyone like knew my dog's name, and whenever they'd see me like going out to walk the dog, they'd be like, "Oh, Mulder, hey!" But nobody knew my name, and nobody ever talked to me. Um, and like, and even though I try to engage with people, like, "Oh, what's your name?" and it just like wouldn't work because people were so. And it's like I feel it th- feel like you kind of run into that a lot, or like where people are so awkward and closed off from even their own neighbors, but they feel comfortable engaging with someone's dog, but not the like person that is on the other end of the leash with the dog. And it was always just such a such a strange experience it's like they want to engage but they don't know how it's like they want to be social but it's so much easier to just be like oh there's a cute fluffy animal that we can like relate about but then it's like this awkward thing like i will only look at the dog so i don't have to look at you and talk to you it's like so so fucking weird and how many guys 
have bought dogs as a way to meet women. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Uh, the dog's the one meeting the women. Yeah. I mean, I mean, another example that I think really supports what you're saying about early humans that we can look back to is the colonizing diary entries of people like Christopher Columbus and other kind of European colonizers who yes. describe the nature of these societies as they were colonizing them eagerly. So um, one of them, you know, Christopher Columbus talking about the native people in the Indies, this just is nightmarish i mean he describes the culture as quote the best people in the world and above all the gentlest they do not murder or steal and they love thy neighbors as themselves then a few pages later horrifically pivots to saying we'll only need like 50 or so men to subjugate them as slaves <laughs> like whoa like holy fuck you, you weren't inspired at all by <laughs> by that you're just like oh they're so easily like enslave these morons who just like love each other and are just so good natured it's just like such a horrific contrast yeah and we'll do it in the name of jesus our lord and savior right <laughs> i mean what the hell man jesus is like them jesus was one of them uh it, it's just incredible how you're right it, it's really interesting those first contact accounts how even though the the person writing this is so infected with the sense of superiority and conquest and you know all that nonsense um still you get these uh insights that come through them that we can see now uh you know like the one you just read from from Columbus um which I first came across in Howard Zinn's People's History of the US um, you know, he starts off with that. It's just fantastic. I mean, it's, it's horrific, but it's so insightful. Another one, I don't remember if I included this in the book, but, or maybe it was in Sex at Dawn, but it was a Jesuit who was, I think in the 1600s with some of the people around Lake Huron in, in Eastern Canada. And he was, they were having a feast. And they had had, they were eating all of this food. They'd like caught a bunch of beavers or something and they invited the people from nearby villages over and, you know, hey, we're having a feast. And, and, uh, this Jesuit recounted the conversation he had with one of the men. He said, you know, you, you're, you're just, everyone's eating all the food. Like, why don't you save some for tomorrow? And the guy said, well, we'll just catch more tomorrow. And he said, well, but what if you don't? He said, well, then you know, we won't eat tomorrow. We'll eat the next day. We'll catch more the next day. And the point of that is, you know, part of this whole neo-Hobbesian perspective is that we take our scarcity-based mindset and we project it into the past. And we say, well, you know, if, if there's no food in my fridge and for some reason, you know, transportation systems break down, I'm going to starve. And we assume that's the way everyone lived. But in fact, hunter-gatherers look at the world with a sense of abundance. They look around them, they see food, they see medicine, they see everything they need, and it's all free. It's all just there. So another one of the universalities of hunter-gatherers is that they, to the extent that they envision gods, the gods are benevolent. The gods love them. The gods take care of them and give them things. We are the only people who have a jealous, angry, spiteful God, which really tells you something about the difference between 
everyone else's perspective on the world and ours. We're the only ones in this weird oppositional, conflictive relationship with the spiritual world, speaking, you know, as of the Christian world. The angry, vindictive God who wants to commit mass murder and genocide of the planet. Right. Um, I wanted to really quickly touch upon just the status of women, LGBTQ people in these societies, because there's this narrative today as we're seeing this cultural backlash of sexuality and, uh, you know, things like LGBTQ rights, abortion, being trans is considered this fad, right? You're, you're grooming our kids to be gay. Trans people are mentally ill. I mean, this is just fascinating because anyone who's kind of dived into the history of these identities for thousands of years, this is something that is goes back very, very far as well as the notion that these societies were super violent, you know, because in most depictions of these cultures, like on TV and movies and stuff, it just seems like this uncivilized barbarism that people will just murder each other over, like taking a banana or something. I mean, it just, it, it really is like similar to like zombie apocalypse is like biopics portraying society, like the walking dead it like kind of reminds me of like, oh, this is, you know, it, it's basically portraying like this is what we will naturally do to each other once like society breaks down. So I don't know. Can just comment on those two factors, too. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a fascinating area. And you see the propaganda is so strong and passionate and insistent. And like one of the the things that really frustrates me um, about the neo-Hobbesian perspective, and particularly in the case of Steven Pinker, is that it's one thing to not – I mean, we all have blind spots. We all have biases, myself included. But Steven Pinker did a thing uh, in, in a TED Talk and then in, in one of his earlier books. Um, I forget which the blank slate it might have been, but – he did this thing where he said, okay, we're going to look at, um, we're going to compare the level of violence today to the level, levels of violence in hunter gatherer societies. So, you know, to get a sense of whether it's gone up or down over the centuries. And so he picked 10 so-called hunter gatherer societies and he looked at their death rates through violent conflict and then they extrapolated from that to get a general sense of of what it must have been like in hunter-gatherer times. And I looked into this, I looked into those societies and looked into the research that he was citing, and I think it was seven of those societies were not, in fact, hunter-gatherers. So he just totally misrepresented them. They were horticulturalists or agricultural societies, meaning that they had livestock, they had gardens, they had houses, they had accumulated resources. That's what people fight over. They fight over accumulated resources. Immediate return hunter-gatherers have no accumulated resources. That's the definition of immediate return hunter-gatherer. You go out, you find it, you eat it, that's it, immediate return. Um, so he totally misrepresented the, the tribes that he was using as examples. And then the others, one, uh, one or two of the others, were Amazon tribes that lived in a very remote area in Brazil and um, Venezuela. And 
he counted people who had been killed by gold miners and loggers <laughs> as war deaths. <laughs> so he literally said these people are violent because they got killed by us. <laughs> and then he used that to say we're more peaceful than hunter-gatherers. It's, it's intellectual malpractice, and it's deeply dishonest. In Sex at Dawn, I called him out. There's a section called Professor Pinker, Red in Tooth and Claw, where I said, you know, look, these are not hunter-gatherers. And I quoted the scientists that whose research he was using, saying these are horticulturalists, these are agriculturalists. And in his next book, he just changed. He used the same research, but he changed it from hunter-gatherers to pre-state societies. <laughs> That's all he did. Um, so to me, that's, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I, I try to be, give people the benefit of the doubt, but that's just dishonest. Um, but as far as the, the sort of reality of how people behave, um, when the state is not, uh, there to sort of protect us from each other, um, Rebecca Solnit wrote a fantastic book called Paradise Built in Hell. And it's about the discipline of disaster sociology. And so she interviewed people who have studied how humans behave in disasters, uh, whether it's a natural disaster like an earthquake or it's a man-made disaster like a war or whatever. And or like 9-11, right? That's in, in New York. Um, and what these researchers have found, without exception, is that People who live through disasters look back on those days as the best days of their lives. Mm -hmm. So we would look at it from outside and say, oh, my God, that must have been so horrible. And what they tell the researchers, researchers is, yes, it was horrible. There were bodies in the street. I lost friends, et cetera. But my life had purpose. I felt that I was part of something bigger than myself. I was helping people. People were helping me. I felt embedded in a community. I miss those days. You know, you, you talk, Mike was talking about uh, not knowing your neighbors. How many New Yorkers tell the story about, oh, yeah, I lived in this building 20 years, never talked to my neighbors. Then 9-11, we were all in the lobby saying, oh, my God, how can I help you? Do you need anything? And let me give you a ride here. Do you, you know, need my phone? People come together. That's what we do. And that's what we miss so much. That's why street gangs are so ubiquitous, right? That's why people wear their team jerseys like everybody wants to be part of some group that's bigger than them that takes care of each other um you know i'm not religious but i sometimes envy people who are because you know i have a friend who who has three kids and he said to me you know i don't really know if i believe or not but i take my kids to church because i want them to have the community so yeah. I, I think that is a really deep part of humanity. And the idea that when, I mean, there's this incredibly moving bit in, in Rebecca Solnit's book where she's talking to the man who sort of started disaster sociology. And I think he had been working in World War II doing research about like how the Germans would respond to different kinds of bombing campaigns. Um, and he came across this idea that, like, actually, when we bomb civilian centers, it doesn't break their spirit. It makes it stronger um, because they 
get together and help each other. And this is this deeply human thing. And he said to her, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, at the end of my career, 50, 60 years of studying this, I've come to the sad realization that the real disaster is normal life. Wow. Because it separates us from each other. It separates us from community, from meaning. We don't have anything to do. I have a a buddy who's a fireman in uh, Portland, uh, a real close friend, and we were talking about some of the things that he's seen. And he said, man, you know, because he shows up at, you know, auto accidents and murders and suicides and just all the nastiest stuff. And he said, man, the saddest thing I've ever seen is old people who are all alone. And they call 911 just for someone to talk to. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Or when bodies are found, you know, after people have been dead for several days or weeks in their apartment and no one knows. Oh, my God. I mean, Mike and I went to the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey and saw firsthand when the state completely breaks down and does not provide what it should. People fill in the gaps. And you see this with Hurricane Sandy and so many other disasters that happen. And that totally makes sense that, yeah, I mean, when things are extremely hard and tough, and that basically brings out who we are, the core of being humans, um, and putting that selflessness front and center, like, I mean, just the detachment, that structural violence that the system of capitalism creates, that huge gap, where you can put policies in place that essentially murder, you know, tens of thousands of people. But the same person who's signing that law might dive into a river to save a complete stranger. It's like something that it's just this complete detachment that the system creates. And it is so wild that clearly, based on everything you said, Chris, that our human nature, our natural state and desires is to have that community and closeness and togetherness and cooperation and collectivism and all of that. But our our society is so just warped and deformed that it, it's what people think of like it, the way things are, like that's human nature when it's really the opposite. The human nature is the opposite, but we only get to experience it or get a piece of it when there is some kind of horrific fucking disaster <laughs> that right. brings it out in us. And it just kind of shows how detached we are actually from being human, like what made us human beings to begin with, what made us successful as a species to begin with for most of our existence, and just come so far away from it that it takes great pain and tragedy to get us kind of back to a, a normal state of being in a way. Yeah, it's it's crazy, right? Like people people talk about, you know, they, they were hiking and their phone battery went dead, and for three days they didn't have a phone, and, and they they come back and they're like, oh, my God, that was so great. Like I could (laughs) – my attention span grew and, you know, I could concentrate and, I, you know, I could actually read a book. And it's like so much of society is about distracting us and selling us. Like it's it's, – I forget the phrase I used in the book, but it's like it – the – the commodification is the process of taking away something that was free and then selling us a cheap copy of it. And then we forget that we ever had it for free. And we're such adaptive creatures that we can adapt to the state of things with that. Like, I mean, 
I want to just say this because this was one of the most dosed facts in the book that we I've heard all my life. Okay, let's go back to Hobbes's quote. Let's go back to the short, right? Life was short. Apparently, <laughs> Mike, I just dosed the fuck out of you the other day, dropping this shit on you. But Chris, people live to only be 30 years old, right? I mean, that's what we hear constantly. I've heard that my whole life. Look, even you're painting this glorious picture of what hunter-gathering societies were. All right, well, fuck. No one lived to be past 30. Average lifespan, 30. Yeah. Yeah, so that's evidence of how hungry we are as a society to believe this bullshit narrative because the fact as any specialist any anthropologist knows who's you know studied this is that hunter gatherers live typically into their 70s even into their 80s Boom. if they survive childhood so the it's a it's a math trick, right? Like Mark Twain said, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> so it's a statistical sleight of hand where you say a hundred hunter gatherers are born, forty of them die before they're ten years old, which is sadly pretty typical. So that's the if, you know, if I were on the other side of this conversation, I would be talking about infant mortality and child mortality, which is a serious issue. Um, but if you take 100 people who are born, 40 of them die before they're 10, uh, you know, the other 60 live well into their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then average it out, you come to something around 35 or, or 38. Uh, and that's where that number comes from. But it's been misunderstood to say that everyone died by they were by the time they were 35. <laughs> That's just not true. Um, you know, I don't know what the average income is of, you know, Topanga Canyon, where I live right now. But I can assure you that it is not a reflection of my income, even though I happen to be here right now. Statistics are just nonsense uh when you're talking about stuff like this it's so, so disingenuous it's so disingenuous, it's so disingenuous to perpetuate that when it when really yeah. it's comparable to today's lifespan that's what's so mind-blowing about it particularly if you're looking at active lifespan right mm -hmm. right uh, hunter gatherers typically live as i said if if they survive childhood they typically live into their um uh, anywhere from the estimates range from 68 to 78 being the sort of typical um, age at death. And the person will be active, healthy, you know, walking a lot, moving a lot. Hunter-gatherers typically walk anywhere from 5 to 10 kilometers a day. And then they will get sick and they'll die in a week or two weeks. Um, and that's it. There's no months in a nursing home. There's no dementia. There's no... Uh, you know, living alone in an apartment somewhere and not talking to the neighbors for years. There's, there's none of that despair and like slow decay that we have in our societies. Um, so when people say, oh, we live longer, it's like, wait a minute, man. First of all, the statistical thing, we haven't doubled the human lifespan. That's pure bullshit. Um, and like I said, anyone who knows what they're talking about knows that. The problem is, that a lot of people who aren't specialists, who don't know this research, 
don't really think about it. They don't think about like, wait a minute, Benjamin Franklin was an old guy, right? In the Old Testament, it says our time on earth is three score and 10. That's 70. That's in the Old Testament. Um, there's a lot of evidence, you know, a lot of sort of classical figures that we, we think about from the ancient Greeks to, you know, whomever, Beethoven, uh, they lived into their 60s, 70s and 80s. So clearly people weren't all dying in their 30s. Uh, even chimpanzees live into their 50s typically. Um, but people don't have time to think about this. They think they must be wrong because they've read it so many times in different places. And it has serious effects. I, I used to teach in a medical school in Barcelona, and I can remember every year I would make a big point with the, these are medical students. I would make a big point to say, like, listen, this is wrong. What you've been told is wrong because you've got orthopedic surgeons who say, well, of course you have back pain. The human body was only designed to live for 30 or 35 years. So, you know, you're 45. Of course you're <laughs> going to have back pain. No, no, that's just not true. So it creates a, a template of human longevity and human health that ends up having repercussions all over the place in medicine. Um, so it's, you know, it's really hard because I've been preaching this for well over a decade and I still read it everywhere that we've doubled the human lifespan. So we're going to live into our, you know, 150 soon because we've jumped from 35 to 80 or whatever in the last century. It's just nonsense. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it really blew me away because I have heard this. It's such like conventional wisdom that makes us not address the core thesis of the book, which is that our environment is what's killing us and degrading our life. It's not the fact that we naturally, you know, um, innately just are, just outgrew our lifespan very recently and we're just dealing with all the consequences of that. That's insanity. I want to go just quickly to how, you know, the initiation of farming and agriculture, of course, changed so much, um, not just, of course, the way we produce and consume food, but every aspect of human society, the dynamics between each other, male-female relations, childcare, class, militarism, human relationships to the environment, to other animals, to each other. Of course, I think most importantly, given to the context of a lot of what we're talking about is the birth of economic oppression, the notions of ownership and exploitation, colonial, colonialism, excuse me, feudalism, imperialism, in the book, you quote Jean Leidloff, who says something I think really astute, perhaps obvious, but but um, poignant nonetheless, that says, quote, the design of each individual is a reflection of the experience it is expected to encounter. Because when you wrap your mind around this, how we did live for the vast majority of our existence compared to how we live now – Every aspect of our lives today is really this distorted perception of what kind of animal are we? What is the nature of a homo sapien? Um, in the book, you talk about we're, how we're the only species that live in zoos of our own design. And essentially, we're held hostage by our own creations, money, um, the structure of society, government, 
we live in a world that no other human generation has ever known because of the advancements, quote unquote, that we've, um, you know, put in place over the last hundred or so years since mango the industrial slicers. civilization, <laughs> styrofoam, plastic, mango slicers. I mean, and instead of changing the environment, right, we try to change our brain chemistry, going back to suicide rates, going back to antidepressants, um, the overdiagnosis of disorders, Everything about the way we live goes against human nature. And even though it's like I there's something subconsciously that like I think we all know this, but to see it written out and articulated in such a way that it's just like, fuck, this is so crazy that we're doing this to ourselves. And it's like there's no way out because of how things have it's like, what do you fucking do? How do you get out of this? <laughs> like, well, how do how do we reverse course at this point? You get a van <laughs> <laughs> and you live down by the river. <laughs> well, I, I I think that uh, there are different ways to answer this. I, there's you know the sort of on the social level, on a macro level, like you know how do we as a as a species turn this around and then there's on a personal level which is how do i um find satisfaction and health uh, and happiness within this messed up situation um and i think like to start with the the second i do think that there are adjustments that we can make in our lives um, and everyone's situation is different, so people will have to, you know, look around and figure out what's available, what they can handle. But, you know, there are things that we can do in our lives that um, ameliorate some of this pain and and bring in some pleasure and health and happiness. And these things are aligned with the way we evolved, as you know, in that quote. Um, from the continuum concept, she says the body, each aspect of the body is an expression of what is expected, right? And that's evolution in a nutshell, right? Evolution is depending upon what conditions your ancestors have dealt with, that is the adjustment to the design of your your body and to some extent your psyche as well. Um, so, when we're trying to find ways to adjust our personal lives, uh, it makes a lot of sense to look at hunter-gatherers. Just like, you know, if you're wondering, you know, if you, you talk to the, the dog whisperer, he'll tell you that dogs are essentially wolves. So if you want to understand your dog, you need to look at the way wolves evolved and the, the way they behave and the things they need to be happy and healthy and, you know, feel comfortable. Um, we're the same. If you want to understand how humans, what humans need to be healthy, happy, and comfortable, you look at hunter-gatherers. They're the wolves and we're the, you know, the labradoodles or whatever. Um, so I, I do, that's one of the, the keys to the book is like, look, I'm not telling anyone how to live, but I'm saying this is a lens you can use, a tool you can use to find things that will work for you. For me personally, you know, I was being facetious with the van, but that's one of the reasons I, I have the van because I love moving around. I love being out in the middle of nowhere and sitting by a fire at night. And, you know, there's a reason firelight relaxes us 
and computer light doesn't. It's the wavelengths. We evolved looking into amber wavelengths. We did not evolve looking into the blue part of the spectrum at night. Uh, we get the blue light in the morning, so that wakes us up. Our brain is responding to the wavelength of the light. So, okay, it's easier to make computers with blue wavelengths, so that's what they do. They don't care about, uh, you know, making it work with our brain, right? TV, it's not about, oh, well, we evolved with, you know, amber light of fire, so let's make it that way. No, it's economic considerations. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I... The van is great. I'm out in the woods a lot. I'm, I jump in rivers, you know, Wim Hof and the whole cold water thing. There's a reason that works. There's a reason that that makes us feel good because our ancestors did that for millennia. Um, the other thing in the van is community. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've been doing this seven years now. Uh, and so we sort of go around and visit the same people year after year and we see their kids are a year older and, you know, they, they're expecting us. So we'll have a party or we'll float down the river or we'll, you know, they'll invite their friends over, some of whom we met last year or the year before. And we do these, um, get togethers where people who listen to my podcast will hear me say, okay, listen, next week we're going to be in Bozeman at this brew pub at 7 PM on Tuesday. Come on down. And it might be seven people. It might be 50 people. We never know. And the beauty of it is. It's not like, oh, you know, lucky you, you get to meet me. It's you get to meet each other. And the kind of people who listen to my podcast, and I think they're probably very similar to the kind of people who are listening to yours, they're weirdos. They're cool, (laughs) funky weirdos who don't feel comfortable in this world and are trying to figure it out and, and often find themselves feeling misunderstood and... Uh, out of place. And so the more I can introduce them to each other, the happier I am because that's, it's so beautiful to see that happen. There, there are lots of ways to create win-win situations in life, right? You can share resources. You can, you, you know, uh, where we bought this land in Colorado. One of the reasons is that the land was cheap enough that a lot of our friends are buying land in the same little town. And the idea is we're all going to help each other build the house. And then so-and-so is going to have the goats and she's going to have the chickens and we're going to do this and he's going to take care of that. And so we'll have that sense of community that we yearn for. And we will know our neighbors because we've chosen the neighbors. Well, you heard, Chris, you guys got to join the van life, (laughs) join the van crew, get in contact with these people because that's really what life is all about, guys, and reaching out to these communities, building from them, um, finding how we are all connected here and what interests we share. I want to get back to a couple dose things about the book um, before we get into fascinating section about child rearing and parenthood. I, I can't help but just think of, you know, I guess I thought for a long time, you know, wealthy people, there, there's something that drives like sociopaths and psychopaths into these certain industries, advertising and politics and stuff like that, Wall Street. But it does seem like there is something that just creates this kind of sociopathy that actually deconstructs the nature of your brain once you are in these positions. So, let me go back to the notion, this neo-Hobbesian notion of how, you know, I think a, a majority of people who are like scholars and scientists basically 
go out to defend the status quo and they intellectualize within this kind of paradigm justifying that hierarchies are fundamental to human nature. Poverty is inevitable, maybe even necessary. Going to Richard Dawkins, someone who is greatly revered as this huge intellectual thinker, very influential. Fascinatingly enough, writing an entire book about selfishness, how it's encoded into our DNA, essentially, and how this gene selfishness gives rise to selfishness and in individual behavior. But as you point out, I mean, this, this basically exempts humans from the chromosomal constraints that are common to all living things. And it is very strange when you actually put us up on a pedestal and separate us from all other living things, and it totally defies logic. And when you look at, you know, if, if, if helping people makes us fulfilled biologically, the only reason people are so selfish is an outgrowth of the system itself. And there's this fascinating study in the book also that shows something like, you know, once you have a certain status of wealth, that detachment becomes more extreme. You start to feel like you are separate from the homeless person on the street. You start to give less. The generosity becomes less. The stinginess becomes increased. But the work, but like working, you can't stop working. It's like the addiction of feeding into the wealth even though you are so wealthy you can step away and be fulfilled it's like you have to keep going this fascinating study in the book that that shows that even when you're looking at like photos of people with cancer wealthy people's brains showed less activity than poorer people when they looked at this i mean it's just it's that mirror system right the powerlessness that boosts the empathy from the mirror system as opposed to power um, and status that actually dampens that mirror system. Yeah, it, it, I agree. I think you're talking about the section where I, I coined the phrase rich asshole syndrome. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which I hope will be in the next <laughs> DSM uh, diagnostic manual. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, you know, you're, I think you're right that psychopaths are drawn to certain professions um, that tend to pay very well um, because when you're doing the bidding of uh, a corporation, which is basically a psychopath, um, it makes sense. It, there's a, a resonance there and a convergence. But I also think that, you know, I, I wrote about the first time I went to India and I was – 27 or something and had saved up a few thousand dollars and, and went to India and I was sitting in a restaurant and I'd been living in Manhattan for a few years previous to that. So I was used to, um, homeless people. I was used to just ignoring, you know, the sort of plight of the people around me. Um, but I wasn't accustomed to a gang of kids staring at my food while I was eating in this restaurant. Uh, they weren't staring at me. They weren't asking me for anything. They were just staring at my food and they weren't faking it, right? These weren't, you know, oh, you're an alcoholic. You should go to the shelter. There's no shelter. They weren't alcoholics. They were, it wasn't, there's no way to spin it as being their fault. Um, and I realized like I'm insanely wealthy all of a sudden sitting here in old Delhi, I suddenly became a millionaire. 
I have enough money in my money belt to build a small school or a medical clinic or to, you know, to pay the debt of a family that will be in debt the rest of their lives. It's, it's this crazy thing. So I realized wealth isn't about how much you have. It's about how much you have relative to the people around you. And when there's a great disparity there, it hurts psychologically. It hurts. Uh, it hurts both sides. Um, but I think we develop scar tissue because we don't want to face those questions about like, how can I help? Is there a way I can help? You don't want to go down the rabbit hole of, you know, will they just use the money for drugs or how can I know that it's really helping them? Or, you know, what are the tax repercussions of the, you know, it's like it opens up this can of worms. And so we learn to ignore it. Um, but every time we learn to ignore something, there's a cost. There's a psychological numbing effect. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's a, that's a problem. And so you get the kind of sickness you're talking about where people are like, yeah, I'm, you know, my net worth is $11 million, but I work seven days a week and I've got an ulcer and I don't take vacations. And it's like, okay, dude, you're sick. You know, that's an addiction. Uh, it, and it's funny, we don't, it's probably one of the most widespread addictions in American society, but nobody considers it an addiction. Success addiction, you know, money addiction, uh, ambition addiction. Uh, I see them everywhere. And I think they have a horrible corrosive effect on people's lives. There's a, a great study. I think I talked about in the book called uh, the rat park study, um, where a guy named Bruce Alexander is a Canadian psychologist. Back in the 80s, um, there were all these ad campaigns about how cocaine and heroin were so addictive that rats would taste them once and then they would ignore their food and just keep taking the, the water bottle with the drugs in it until they died. And so this was a, you know, a lesson in what would happen if you try these drugs even once. You'll just, you know, You'll wither away and die because you'll forget everything else. And this guy had worked with rats a lot in his research. And he thought, like, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, I don't think rats would do that. So uh, he looked into the research. And what he found was that all these studies were using rats that were caged Alon. individually. Yep. Alon. Totally isolated. <laughs> and I want to be on coke all the time, too. Sounds fucking horrible, man. It's horrible. So he he built an enclosure that he called Rat Park, which was this big, you know, open kind of area with toys and wheels to run on. And he put like older rats and baby rats and all different ages because that's the way rats are. Rats are a very social species. And he let them choose between the drugs and regular water. And what happened was they would try the drug bottle once and then ignore it. And so that research showing how ubiquitous and, and difficult it is to get away from addiction and all that, that sort of replicated the modern world in a way. Mm -hmm. Social isolation, meaninglessness, you know, just this boring. It's basically like if you offered drugs to prisoners, how many of them would take the drugs? Probably all of them because they're prisoners. But if you offer the drugs to people who are living happy, fulfilling lives, most of them would say, Meh, I don't need it. Why bother? 
Um, so I don't remember why I'm talking about no, that. No, it, it's a perfect it's a perfect example of um, again changing our brain chemistry instead of changing our environment. Right. Two other fast dosed as fuck facts from the book that I just want to drop on our dosed audience here is the effects of herd mentality. Kind of when you're comparing something like locusts to grasshoppers, like. These are the same species. A locust is a grasshopper and a grasshopper is a locust. Yet they change. They basically f- morph from one to another based on the conditions of the herd. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, along with that kind of herd mentality that humans can become like another, basically like morph into another thing entirely that goes against what they are in a different setting There's also a myth of human nature that humans are inclined to just follow orders, right, when they're under the spell of authority. And we've all heard of the infamous Milgram psychology experiments where that commonly cited figure of like, I don't know, what is it, like 70% of people follow the experimenter's orders to blindly, just blindly, they just blindly follow them like sheep to shock subjects with increasing severity, of electricity. Of electricity. Electric like actually electroshock people. I was amazed and astounded to learn the disingenuous nature of this study being peddled forever throughout my entire life as proving, you know, like that Hitler, like the Nazis just following orders, just following orders. This was based on one of 24, 24 different variations of the study. Many produced wildly different results. Most refuse to inflict any pain at all. What the absolute fuck? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) it's true. Again, it shows you how hungry uh, society is to peddle this false narrative of human nature. And it's so sad, right? Because the narrative is that we need to be afraid we need to be afraid of the natural world and we need to be afraid of human nature because we're all killers. We're all rapists. We're all horrible, horrible, fallen, sinful, dark, disgusting creatures. And it's only society that saves us from ourselves and each other. Whereas the reality is so much more optimistic and hopeful and celebratory. Human nature is beautiful right yes do things happen do do people kill each other do people make mistakes do people pass pain on that they've experienced yes no doubt but nobody's ever suffering from ptsd because they helped a stranger right nobody clearly when you hurt someone it hurts you there's there's a pain, there's a price that we pay when we hurt other people, unless you're a total psychopath, and that's a very rare condition. Um, people inflict pain out of their own pain. It's not the natural condition of, of human nature. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, just think about puppies, right? Like, no puppy is nasty. There's no dog, <laughs> nasty dog that was born a mean puppy, right? They're all cute and happy and ready to be you know, have a happy, healthy life. They have to get twisted to become those mean guard dogs that we see in the, you know, in the 
auto lot or whatever. Um, so the Milgram study, yeah, it was conducted, as you say, 24 times. Most of the sessions, most of the subjects said, fuck you. I'm not shocking that guy. There's no <laughs> way I'm doing that. Right? So they found one when some of the people did it. And they, that's the one that they concentrated on. They ignored all the other ones, you know, which is a big problem in scientific research where you only publish the particular study that came out the way you wanted. Um, yeah. And, and they also, I also thought it was really interesting that the people who were willing to inflict the, the shocks are precisely the kind of people who society, um, Sort of, uh, you know, it gives the gives the accolades. They're the good boys and girls. They're the ones who do their homework and show up on time, wear the suit and tie, and shave every day. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are willing to do that shit. Not the hippies, not the rebels, not the weirdos. Those are the people who question the premise and say, "Wait, wait, what are you asking me to do? No way, man! I don't want to do that." They're the ones who who see through it. So the people we need to be worried about are the middle of the road kind of, you know, rule abiding, uh, no questions asked type people. Exactly, <laughs> man. The conformists yeah. are who, who are the dangerous ones here. The status exactly. quoists, man, that's the most dangerous thing ever. Well, yeah, you know, part of this uh, mythology that the way things are now is human nature, it's normal, it's this pinnacle, it's the better than it's ever been, it's this pinnacle of human achievement. It also goes along with this idea that human beings as a species are the dominant species because we have come to dominate the planet. It's the age of man right now. We are the dominant in the world. The world is impacted primarily by human behavior. Um, but And so that this, this idea that we have evolved to be the most superior species that has ever lived on Earth because of what we've been able to do. But when you really look at it, as Abby mentioned in the beginning, you know, modern Homo sapiens have been around about 160,000 years, right? Uh, Homo erectus, um, which was not was an advanced human ancestor of ours. They had clothes, language, art, culture. They had fucking sailboats. They were like sailing around the ocean <laughs> doing shit. Homo erectus has been had been around for two million years on the planet. So the idea that our existence for less than like a quarter of that time, I think the uh, we have yet to prove that we are the most successful species to live on the planet. Um, you know, there's definitely an example of one that has far outperformed another human ancestor that has far outperformed us in terms of longevity. Who knows where our story ends? Might but Mike, not be I just years, might be but Mike, I just read an Atlantic article about how uh, we can how we can survive the nuclear war that we know is coming. So I feel mm. like you know we've we've advanced to the point where we're now trying to figure out you know it's it we've we've ceded to the notion of the apocalypse. The impending doom from climate change and I guess what we know will be a nuclear war at some point. But you know what? We're so advanced we could try to figure out how can we survive. <laughs> I don't know how the fuck. <laughs> what a great achievement. Yeah, we're a very, very huge uh, groundbreaking achievement there. We have evolved to destroy the world but not die. But somehow, yeah. Literally. Some... <laughs> literally groundbreaking because we'll be living in tunnels. Chris, I want to wrap it up with just – the extreme 
kind of dystopian outgrowth of of the perversion of the system, especially when it's exemplified into American society and the impact on families and children, um, especially, you know, and, you know, we have very unique characteristics in terms of mass shootings and stuff like that, which I want to touch upon as we wrap this up. But a, a couple statistics here that blew me away as well. Americans who have children are among the most unhappy people with children in the entire world. I think, I mean, it's obvious, like, we have just total lack of any state or social support. You know, I mean, we really are left to fend for ourselves, having to work two, three jobs just to help pay strangers to take care of our children. The distance between families and social units that's growing more and more as generations pass by higher child maltreatment rate than most countries, even when you're comparing Canada and Europe. So what I mean by maltreatment is uh, abuse and even murder. Uh, Between 1994 and 2004, 20,000 children were killed by their family members in their own homes. The empathic nature... How does that compare to other countries? I mean, it's like three, four-fold than Canada, I think, several times higher than Europe. I mean, the empathy chip um, is becoming degraded more and more, 40% less empathic than people were 30 years ago due to the maladaptive parenting traits due to the nature of the system. It's not that parents want to be bad parents. It's that they are forced into these perverse um the nature of parenting due to the confines of the system that we live in, which brings me to, and I don't know if you want to comment on that, but it brings me to, I think, the most unique attribute of American culture that people bend over backwards trying to explain, the mass shootings. Obviously, in a culture like ours that, you know, is an empire, empire baby syndrome, we have so many fucking guns. Obviously, it's a tinderbox, right? But... One constant factor in mass shootings, A, it is always men, most always, 99% are men. (laughs) 99.9%. B, people rack their brains trying to figure out what is it that makes these people tick? Why do they do these things? Rarely anyone talks about the shared, most common characteristic, I would say, of these men, which is an issue with women, sexuality, so-called incel qualities that define most of them, Chris. I mean, talk about that. Yeah, well, I guess this is a topic that spans both books. Um, We talked about this and certainly talked about sexual frustration and its repercussions in Sex at Dawn um, as well as in Civilized to Death. Um, But yeah, I, I think that... Sexual frustration, and, and I don't just mean like not getting laid. I mean f- this this social isolation that we're talking about um, where young men and women are facing an increasingly insane social situation where their bodies are encouraging them to hang out um, <laughs> and – you know, but it's all being mitigated through apps and social media and, you know, selfies and all this distorting strangeness. 
Um, like I, I was talking to a friend the other night who's in her twenties and she was talking about the dating thing. And I said, do you ever just like meet people like randomly in life? She's like, no, that's dangerous. You don't do that. You, you have to like, it has to be online. You have to like talk for a while. You have to sort of check them out. You do a Google search, you know, you insta stalk <laughs> them. It's this whole process. And like you, ju- you can't just like meet some guy with a cute dog in the park. Like, no, no, no. Um, so. I think that the problem is that society, American society particularly, is so based on fear. Uh, it's constantly drumming up fear, fear of ourselves, fear of each other, fear of the world, fear of the Russians, fear of the future, fear of the past. It's all, everything's an enemy. Um, and so it makes it very difficult for people to find community, um, much less, you know, healthy, happy, sexual um, life. And, uh, yeah, and a lot of times that gets expressed in rage. Um, men tend to express their rage outward by hurting other people, and women express their rage inward by hurting themselves. Um, so if you look at what's going on with on the woman's side with self-harm and eating disorders and suicide and depression – um, you know, it's, it's affecting them too. We see the, the men with the guns. Um, but a lot of women are quietly suffering from the same things. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it kind of leaves me speechless and hopeless. Um, because I don't know how to talk about it. I'm certainly not saying, you know, some women should have been nice to those guys and then it wouldn't have happened. Like that's, it's a much deeper thing than that. And I think that. Often, young men don't understand the pressures that women are facing. Um, and this is something we talked about a lot in Sex at Dawn, how men, and there's no war between the sexes. That's a divide and conquer strategy from a sick society. Men and women want the same things. And, and you know, I'm glossing over same-sex relationships and all that by just saying men and women uh, I know I'm oversimplifying it, but we all want the same things. We all want pleasure and companionship and intimacy. Um, and there's no sort of differing sexual agendas of men and women, as many people would have us believe. Uh, the problem is that young men think that the reason they're not successful with women is that the women are too picky or the women, there's something wrong with the women and they don't understand women are dealing with incredible pressures. And if, you know, if men want to have more sexual plentitude, they need to make women feel safe. They need to stop shaming women. They need to stop all this slut shaming bullshit. They need to let women feel or create a world in which women feel that their rights are respected, their abortion rights are respected, their bodily rights are respected. You know, this whole rapey thing, rapey culture is not celebrated. You know, you got these lunatics on social media spewing nonsense to young men. Um, you know, we need to get past that. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just I'm just preaching to the choir here at this point. But no, I think it's I, I, I feel badly important. for everybody involved, you know. I think it's important and I wanna summarize this point by another study in your book that proves it. I mean, this is shocking that 
someone did a, a very comprehensive study on foraging cultures and found that it was possible to predict the peaceful or homicidal violence from yeah. two factors the measure of bonding between mother and child and whether or not youth sexual expression was supported or punished and chris as someone who wrote the groundbreaking book sex at dawn which explores all these facets way more nuanced than we've gone over here i mean it's the opposite of where we're going today in society there's an extreme sexual repressive nature a very the religious overtones the patriarchal kind of repression, um, the hierarchical repression, the reinforcement of these norms, of these expectations, the cultural backlash of, you know, identity politics, um, LGBTQ rights. Now we see abortion rights being rolled back. It is very alarming because it is a tinderbox. Then throwing guns in the mix, it's like, what in the fuck do we think is going to happen here? Definitely yeah. not going to go well with the equation that we've put forward in terms of how are we going to progress. And it's it's not good, Chris. Um, but, you know, there's so much more from your book. I encourage anyone who is interested in getting just dosed, overdosed, check out Civilized to Death, check out Sex at Dawn. Become a subscriber and supporter of Tangentially Speaking. Chris Ryan is one of the most thought-provoking, provocative authors, intellectuals out there. I'm so honored to have you on Dosed, to call you a friend. I really hope to see you soon. Join your commune in the near future. Bring <laughs> my children, and uh, maybe we'll all be living together in, in the next uh, decade or so. There you go. <laughs> hey, you're you're a great interviewer. I got to say, you... Uh, when I was just yammering there about the, this whole thing with the mass shooters, I was trying to think of this study. <laughs> like in the back of my mind, there's like, wait, is, there's a study I should be talking about. And it's the James Prescott study that you mentioned. It's, it really exemplifies it because he looked at 27 societies that are in this anthropological data bank. And he said, okay, let's look at mother-infant contact. And let's look at whether teenagers are allowed to explore sexually with each other on one side. And on the other side, let's look at violence. How violent are they? And as you said, in 26 of those 27 societies, he found an exact indirect correlation. So the more body contact there is between mother and infant and the more freedom teenagers have, the lower the violence levels were. Um, and that tells you something, right? We're a warrior society, so sexual frustration and separation of mother and infant are designed. They're intentional to to create violent young men. And that's something that we can do with our own families. I mean, we can at least start there, Chris. There's not much we can do about what society is peddling into our brains and conditioning us conditioning us with, but at least on a on a personal level we can try to do those things. And that is profound. Chris Ryan, I know you're dealing with a lot. I hope your car was fixed. Good luck driving to Colorado. <laughs> we love you, my Thanks. friend. Thank you so much for coming on. Safe travels. Um, looking forward to following your blog and your Instagram. It's always very fun to vicariously live through your exciting life. Thanks so much again for coming on Dose. My pleasure. Bye, Chris.
Bye, guys.